Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Illuminating the Ordinary. It's for Transfiguration Day, Sunday, March the 6th, 2011. It's a guest essay by Amy Frickholm. Amy's a writer for the Christian Century and the author of two books, in 2004, Rapture Culture, and more recently in 2010, Julian of Norwich, a contemplative biography. Amy earned her PhD in literature from Duke University and serves as senior warden at St. George Episcopal Mission in Leadville, Colorado. You can contact Amy at her blog, amyfrickholm.com. A guest essay by Amy Frickholm, Illuminating the Ordinary, for Transfiguration Day. Learning to see in new ways is one of the most difficult tasks of the transformed life. Old habits of selective vision, old choices about what to leave out and what to focus on, tend to dominate us, even as we search for new ways of living and being that are in closer communion with the life of the Spirit. Transfiguration, that mysterious transformation of vision that is narrated in today's readings, is a radical, if brief, way of seeing that is beyond what we are capable of in ordinary moments. The disciples go with Jesus to the mountain, a place out of their ordinary environment, and there they are able to grasp, at least for a moment, a transcendent reality that lives just beyond their normal capacities. Whether they or we are able to receive appropriate meaning from this transformative way of seeing is doubtful, given Peter's fumbling response. And yet, even so, there's something valuable in practicing. In Annie Dillard's essay called Seeing, she recounts the experience of someone who had been blind at birth, but had received sight thanks to a restorative surgery. Beginning to see the world was not as easy a task as one might imagine. First, the person had to reconcile preconceived notions of the world with objects, colors, and distances. Much of what she saw simply felt wrong. A newly sighted person can easily get the meanings wrong, even though she has a radical new gift. This suggests a spiritual kind of sight as well as a physical kind of sight that a person having received a radical new gift might struggle to understand precisely how to use it. For me, transfiguration is about learning to see ordinary things in extraordinary ways. One might argue that Jesus is not a so-called ordinary thing, but in many ways this problem captures the nature of the paradox of Christ. He was, at one and the same time, an ordinary man in God. Learning to see, to perceive, to understand him as God is the adventure on which the disciples had embarked. And trans transfiguration, in the Greek metamorphosis, is one of their lessons. I'm able to understand transfiguration better through engagement with the contemporary poet Christian Wieman. 
Wieman wrestles in his poetry with precisely this gap between the habits of mind and his occasional ability to perceive something altogether different. Wieman only recently has come to think of himself as a Christian, and in his essays he has described his conversion as, quote, color slowly aching into things, the world becoming brilliantly, abradingly alive, end quote. In a poem in his new collection, the book called Every Riven Thing, 2010, Wieman addresses what we might think of as a form of transfiguration. The poem is called From a Window. Incurable and unbelieving in any truth but the truth of grieving, I saw a tree inside a tree rise kaleidoscopically, as if the leaves had livelier ghosts. I pressed my face as close to the pain as I could get to watch that fitful, fluent spirit that seemed a single being undefined or countless beings of one mind haul its strange cohesion beyond the limits of my vision over the house heavenwards. Of course I knew those leaves were birds. Of course that old tree stood exactly as it had and would, but why should it seem fuller now, as though a man's mind might endow even a tree with some excess of life to which a man seems witness? That life is not the life of men, and that is where the joy came in. Weeman begins in a reduced state, a state in which he's unable to believe in anything except what he calls the truth of grieving. Seeing the truth of grieving is ordinary for him, an old habit, and he's stuck inside of it. Looking out his window, he sees something that at first appears impossible, a tree inside a tree ride kaleidoscopically. As if leaves hidden inside the seemingly barren tree had suddenly taken flight. He feels in a moment like he's seeing the spirit of the tree, like he can see beyond it. Of course, he writes, he knows that the tree is just a tree and that the leaves are birds suddenly taking flight. And yet the event changes his perception. The ordinary world is fuller, more real, endowed with what he calls some excess of life. He understands that he's participating in the creation of this image, that his mind has helped to create a transfigured understanding. But he resists the idea that this is a sufficient explanation for what he's seen. Instead, he perceives that the life he's seeing through the tree and birds is larger than he is, and that it is connected to the holy. When he recognizes this series of connections, in the end he experiences joy. His perspective has shifted. The limits with which he begins the poem have become something else entirely. The provisional nature of this kind of sight strikes me as important. In the epistle from 2 Peter for this week, the writer points to Weeman's question about the way his own mind participates. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, he writes, but something more concrete, 
something the disciples saw with their own eyes, something that kept them from the blindness and nearsightedness that traps Weeman at the start of his poem. They must then hold on to this way of seeing, this light, attentive to it, as Peter says, to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. We begin with the provisional, the momentary, the fragmentary, and reach toward a fuller perception of light. As we move between the extraordinary accounts of transfiguration in today's readings and the ordinary events of seeing in our own lives, we do not need to collapse the two. But we can remember with Peter that the light of God is not so hidden that we cannot seek it in ordinary life. The Logos lives, enlivens, infuses, and illuminates even the ordinary. And now for further reflections. Are there times when you feel like you see sacred reality better or worse? What are the connections between the sacred and the profane, the ordinary and the extraordinary in our everyday lives? Are there ways that we can improve our vision? How and why do we remain stuck like women with limited vision? Illuminating the Ordinary, a guest essay by Amy Frickholm. For books this week, I review Eugene Robinson. The title, Disintegration, The Splintering of Black America. New York, Doubleday, 2010, 254 pages. There are 40 million African Americans in the United States. For decades, perhaps centuries, they've enjoyed and endured a single interpretive narrative of a people with a heterogeneous class and culture. Whatever the truth of such a monolithic black America, says Eugene Robinson, it is now long gone and never to return. Instead of a single narrative, black America has experienced a radical disintegration that is both hopeful and dispiriting. Indeed, a 2007 Pew poll found that a stunning 37% of blacks agreed with the statement that, quote, blacks today can no longer be thought of as a single race because the black community is so diverse, end quote. Eugene Robinson proposes that black America has fragmented into four distinct groups that are increasingly distinct, separated by demography, demography, geography, and psychology. They have different profiles, different mindsets, different hopes, fears, and dreams. First, there's an enormous black middle class that has entered America's mainstream. This is a heroic story that qualifies as nothing less than what Robinson calls a miracle. In 1967, for example, only 25% of black households had a median income of more than $35,000. By 2005, that figure had nearly doubled to 45%. 
Their percentage of black households earning more than $75,000 increased from 3.4% to 15.7%. And in education during the same time period, high school graduation rates for blacks increased from 30% to 83%. For all intents and purposes, says Robinson, achieving full parity with white graduation rates of 87%. Secondly, there's a black elite that he calls transcendence, like Oprah, Obama, Condoleezza Rice, and Colin Powell. There have always been isolated individual black elites, of course, but now there are enough of them to comprise a critical mass that wields influence in every sector of society. Third, there are what Robinson calls emergence. The emergence are made up of two groups, immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean, and then blacks in biracial marriages, which only became legal in all states in 1967. A Pew study found that in 2008, 22% of black males and 9% of black females married outside their race. Of special interest are the children of emergence, for whom Jim Crow racism is not a bitter shared experience, but a story learned from history books. Fourth and finally, there are what Robinson calls the abandoned, symbolized in the events of Katrina in the movie Precious. The abandoned are profoundly isolated and because of this have created their own cultural ecosystems. The abandoned need nothing less than an aggressive domestic martial plan. Eugene Robinson is the perfect person to write this book. He's been a journalist for the Washington Post for 30 years, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and a Harvard Nieman Fellow. He's lived through the changing social demographics about which he writes. He's read broadly and deeply in history, politics, culture, and social science. But what really drives this book is its frank discussion about unspoken issues. I especially enjoyed Robinson's casual writing style and the many stories he tells of his own African-American experience, whether interviewing the President of the United States or driving through a blighted ghetto. This book, along with Gwen Ifill's book, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama, 2009, makes for required reading on the state of race in America. The author is Eugene Robinson. The title of the book, Disintegration, The Splintering of Black America, 2010. For film this week, we travel north of the Arctic Circle. The title, The Fast Runner. It's an Inuit movie filmed in the Inuit community by Inuit directors producers, and actors. I'm not sure this film is a masterpiece, as the New York Times said, but it's nonetheless fascinating for several reasons. Shot on location in the Baffin region north of the Arctic Circle, the technical challenges are hard to imagine. Fast Runner was written and produced by the Inuit and features its own people who tell their own story and so it's an ethnographer's dream. 
The winter and summer landscapes are both harsh and beautiful. The rituals and taboos we watch, fascinating. While its production, plot, and setting are intensely local, its themes are as universal as a Greek tragedy. How do a people respond to evil that is destroying not only its sense of community, but its hope of survival? Love, jealousy, rape, revenge, deceit, and even patricide threaten the camp of a particular extended family. In the end, a matriarch speaks from her heart words that she did not want to say. She advises the clan that until the evil in her own family is named, acknowledged, forgiven, and purged, there will be no peace for her people. For their fragile existence has been threatened by forces even more inhuman than the Arctic tundra. The fast runner is in the Inuit language with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry this week, we've published the first stanza of Ash Wednesday by the Nobel Prize winner T.S. Eliot. The title of the poem is called Ash Wednesday. Eliot lived from 1888 to 1965. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I no longer strive to strive toward such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power. Because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow. For there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time and place is always an only place. And what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice, because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice, having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And pray to God to have mercy upon us, and pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain. Because I do not hope to turn again, let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death.
T.S. Eliot, the title of the poem, Ash Wednesday. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 6th, 2011, Transfiguration Sunday. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.